Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Colby Atchison, and I am joined here today with Jason Barney and Dr. Patrick Egan. And we have a great episode in store for you today. We are going to be talking about how to use narration in your lesson planning. And out of that, we'll also just be talking about lesson planning in general. You know, there's a lot of different ways that teachers think about how to plan a lesson, uh, how to be prepared for the time you're about to spend with your students, what your approach to instruction is going to be, what you're going to focus on, what your objectives will be, right? There's a lot that goes into this idea of lesson planning. And so today we're going to take a deep dive into how we can plan lessons from a Christian classical perspective and integrating in methods like narration. So Jason, would you get us started here? Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on lesson planning and using narration in lesson plans. Yeah, thanks, Colby. It's great to be with you, everyone. I think narration is central. Um, It's a central learning strategy. It is most well-known and advocated for by Charlotte Mason, but it has a great history in the tradition of classical education as a a rhetorical training practice, a, a practice of the grammatical tradition. And so I think that centering your lessons on narration is a game changer, that it forces you as the teacher to step out of the way and ensure that students are really learning and digesting the content that you're putting in front of them. And I think we can fall into a trap as educators when we don't do something like um, narration as center to our lessons because we get so focused on what we're teaching, what we're telling students that um, we don't give them the opportunities to actually seal it into their long-term memory that they need to think it through into their own minds. You know, even someone like John Milton Gregory in his Seven Laws of Teaching talks about the um, incredible importance of attention, that students, (laughs) a learner must be one who attends to that which is taught, and that the teaching process is really about exciting the self-learning activities of the student. The learning process is one in which students think into their own minds the content or truth that you would have them know. So I think there's this long tradition or recognition in the classical education movement that we really need to get students doing the work of learning for themselves. And so that, I think, flips on its head in a way how you would, how you would plan a lesson as a teacher. Because so often I think we as teachers will just plan what we're going to say um, or do and not what the students will be doing or saying. Yeah, absolutely. I I really appreciate that about the narration tool as well. Uh, I was talking recently with Chuck Evans, the author of the book Wisdom and Eloquence, And he was uh, saying that a lot of teachers uh, enter their classrooms with this self-perception that 
they don't teach much, you know, that's their self or they don't t- talk much in their lessons. All right. That's their, that's their self-perception that if you were to, to pull the average teacher. So what's the ratio of how much you teach or you speak how, to compare to compared to how students speak? It's something like, you know, Oh, I I'm guessing that I talk maybe 30% of the time and, and students talk 70% of the time. When in fact, if you were to actually go in those classrooms, you would find it's the exact opposite. Often teachers are the ones doing most of the talking during their lesson and students are doing most of the the listening. And so, you know, insofar as we want to change that, as we want to flip that on its head, narration is a great tool for that because then uh, you've got this tool that's central in your lesson where the purpose of it is to have the students speaking and telling back and all of that. So yeah, I really appreciate that, Jason. Maybe I can just uh, explain some of the genesis for us of what, what I have called the narration trivium lesson structure. And you can see kind of advocated for on uh, Educational Renaissance website, in my book, A Classical Guide to Narration. You can get a download. If you go to Charlotte Mason's practice of narration called Charlotte Mason and the Trivium, where I walk through and provide a template for a lesson plan structure with narration at its center and applying the trivium, the ancient trivium, to the the kind of pieces around narration that a teacher might engage in. Um, This goes back for all of us to an influence in a school we began our teaching careers at where there was an influence of a Charlotte Mason educator group, Ambleside Schools International, and a lesson plan structure that they had developed and um, used and kind of passed on to us that drew from Charlotte Mason and had narration at the core with a first little talk beforehand, um, a second little talk after the narration um, or the reading and then the narration and some sort of kind of response for engagement. And I think that, I don't know about you guys, but for me sitting with that and kind of being handed that as, hey, plan your lessons this way made me into a particular type of teacher. I think the the, if I had gone to a different school and there hadn't been a requirement for me to plan my lessons in a particular way, I could have gone all sorts of different directions in my teaching practices. I think the way that you plan lessons is going to have a, a large impact on how you end up teaching and what become your habits as a teacher. And so it was really reflecting on that sort of again, lesson structure derived from Charlotte Mason, and then thinking about the classical tradition and the trivium specifically that that kind of formed this idea of the narration trivium lesson structure. What's important is how the lesson planning itself is so essential to framing everything you're doing as a teacher as a method and not just about content delivery. So having done lesson planning before my Charlotte Mason Renaissance, um, I, I just remember that a lot of what my lesson planning was, was content preparation and outlining content delivery. 
and it wasn't really reflective of methodology. And so I wasn't thinking about how students were learning, how they were engaging with the material, how I would know that they're even assimilating this. And so what's really brilliant about having that kind of lesson plan structure is it is embedded in a methodology so that your lesson planning is actually rehearsing and practicing method and not just checking whether I'm comprehensively getting all of the content across. And so that may be one of the things that our listeners may be wrestling through is how do I move beyond just content delivery to get to a place where there's deep methodological reflection that the pedagogy is actually getting feet and not just something I write about when I'm applying for a job or something I get trained on at on our Tuesday meeting, but now it weds it with that critical moment when I'm actually preparing my lessons. And so maybe you can share a bit about that. How does one move from one set of lesson plans? I might have a whole drive full of past lesson plans and you want to transition from just those content-based lesson plans to something like this this new model or what may be new for, for many fa- uh, teachers. And let me pause maybe right there before diving into that and just mention that I, I think there's probably two types of listeners here. Um, often teachers of older students are more inclined toward the lecture method and kind of have that in their bones. And I, I imagine some of you might be teachers of younger students. And what you have is potentially an impulse to do a lot of skill-based work or learning activities with students. And so you might think to yourself, well, I don't plan lessons like that. I don't come up with my long lecture on content to do. Um, So, you know, I can uh, leave this aside because I'm always having students do things, but maybe what you're having students do are skill activities where they're, for instance, filling in blanks in a worksheet or doing other sorts of, you know, little engagement tactics. But what you're missing potentially is actually the students taking in lots of content from the books you read. So you're great at a reading lesson where you have students reading and doing this, and then you ask them a few comprehension questions at the end and make sure that students got the big ideas. So you're developing them in those skills, but what you might be missing without narration at the center and this sort of lesson structure is that there are a lot of good times and skill-based lessons have their place, but there are a lot of good times where you could get students absorbing way more content. That's just about the beauty and the ideas of it. And that's rich and holistic. So I just wanted to step back because you brought it up, um, Patrick, I feel like there is this potential dichotomy in that way. And what what potent, what the narration trivium lesson maybe does that helps the broader educational world is it bridges the gap between more lecture-based, um, you know, s- classes from, you know, teachers of older students and these kind of skills and activities-based lessons um, that many teachers of younger students have and finds kind of something that each of those is missing in between. 
Well, perhaps next we can talk about um, how the trivium fits in with narration. I've mentioned that briefly and really to get this move, which is somewhat controversial in a world where we focused for a while on the trivium as stages of learning so that there's a stage that's the grammar stage, a stage that's the logic or dialectic stage and a stage for students that's their rhetoric where they kind of go through this um, growth and childhood development experience where they're focused on you know, the grammar of things, the facts and memorization. Then they start asking questions and arguing in that pert stage of Dorothy Sayers and then the poetic stage of producing and creating things themselves. Instead of thinking of the trivium that way, I want us to think for the narration trivium lesson, at least, of these as arts, the trivium arts as, if you will, different sorts of language skills or ways of encountering the world through words. And so grammar in this kind of longer tradition then um, involves the art of speaking correctly and well and writing correctly and well, but maybe even more particularly of being able to read and interpret texts. So a whole um, tradition of how grammar was taught in the ancient world, Middle Ages, Renaissance, really involves students reading great books or classic works of literature, poems, and a teacher guiding them through that book to interpret it well, to understand it, and sharing background details and things like that. And so grammar is about reading that, reading with understanding. And so really narration helps with that in a number of different ways, but narration um, gives us a tool for helping students attend well to the written word or to the read word. And so um, before you read that word to students, before you have them read a text, you want to prepare them in some way. And so that's where I think kind of Charlotte Mason's first little talk looks like or feels like a pre-grammar, a preparation for a high comprehension reading of a text. Uh, and then we can kind of take that further with dialectic and rhetoric, where dialectic is this art of reasoning to the truth about something. So we, we want to teach students this art where they're actively thinking through the implications of things and, and reasoning out things. And so when we've read a text, we've got content in our minds, we've narrated it. Now, what do we want students to do next? We want them to think further about that content, to get further with the truths that were in that rich story or event from history or Bible passage and um, and learn how to think well about it. And so we we go into a sort of second little talk um, or a response to the text where we we get students to to parse things out, to think out the implications and applications of text. And I think that um, is a skill that that we do to absorb content as well. And of course, some of those sort of responses are also rhetorical in nature, where we get students to do some writing, to prepare for a presentation, to express um, beautifully and helpfully and persuasively their own opinion that they've now developed about 
the text um, and the truths and ideas that it contained for someone else. And we want to hone them that art for our students. And so we could use every lesson in a way um, as an opportunity to train students in these arts of the trivium, the art of reading and interpreting, the art of seeking the truth through reasoning and the art of persuading, expressing one's own opinion in a way that is thoughtful, helpful, clear, and persuasive. So that's the the big picture of how the trivium fits in with a narration lesson. I love it how you've you've helped us to think through the benefit of a lesson plan that's embedded in method and thinking about just different educational levels, skills, and you know, replacing the lecture with something that's a little more effective and how it really derives its its uh, structure from the trivium. Um, so we've got these R's, reading, writing, reasoning, you, you threw in there as well. What about arithmetic? You know, c- can something like this lesson plan help, help the math teacher where we might be doing s- some different things? Does it work for, for our friends on the, in the other departments? That's a good question, Patrick. I think I, my thinking has developed on this over time. Um, and so it's just, I, I would submit it as just one person's take. But I do think that there are limits to a simply text-based approach. And I'm, I'm thinking about this now in terms of Um, content-based versus skill-based lessons or lessons that are focused on absorbing new knowledge or content, as opposed to lessons that are focused on honing um, new skills. It's kind of a continuum rather than uh, simply one or the other, because part of what I'm doing in the narration trivium lesson is saying, hey, teachers, let's one, center the lesson on the students actually knowing things by the end, absorbing the content, testing it through narration, assessing that they are actually taking knowledge into themselves. But then as we do that, why not also coach them in the skills of the trivia, the the language art skills, the way of getting at knowledge through reading and interpretation discussing to the truth and expressing one's own view persuasively. Like let's, let's coach them in those skills as we get at the knowledge. So I think it's a continuum, but I do think that there are other types of lessons. And I kind of mentioned this with how many lower school teachers might be focused on activities and skill-based sorts of lessons, where if you think about um, other offshoots of the trivium, like phonics or spelling or grammar or even things like you're mentioning uh, mathematics, there are times at least where what we're really doing there is helping a student master a particular language or mathematical skill. And so I do think that that type of lesson where we don't have much content, I mean, there might be a little concept, right? That we're trying to get across, but what they really need is practice lots of accountable practice with a new skill that they're developing 
that I use a different sort of lesson structure and what I am calling now an apprenticeship um, or an art-based lesson structure. And actually I plan to um, put this out with educational renaissance in the near future, but I've been using it with um, faculty that I've trained and at the school that I'm at currently, because I really do think this goes back to even when I was teaching Latin with you all at uh, Clapham school and trying to think about how it's different from a narration trivium lesson when I'm, when I'm trying to hone skills of Latin language learning. So um, I do think that there, there are limits to using narration trivium lesson planning with something like mathematics. I, I would pause and mention science as one where it seems to work incredibly well most of the time to um, focus lessons on reading. I would say there are occasional lessons in science where a lot of what we're doing is some sort of demonstration. It it depends on the type of science, like the exact subject itself um, will color this. So for instance, if you're doing perhaps physics and we're integrating with mathematics in such a way where, where what we're really wanting them to get is how to uh, say do unit conversions or um, calculate force given certain things. I mean, that's almost like a mathematical equation that we're working with there. It's really a skill that uh, having gotten the big picture concept, we want them to hone through a lot of accountable practice. So that's a good question. You know, I I think it's helpful, though, to zoom out a little bit and see that in both of these methods, Jason, this narration based method that we're focusing on in today's podcast and this skill based um, lesson template method that you're rolling out with your teachers, there's a shared value in both approaches. And that is that students are doing the work of learning that students are being called to demonstrate knowledge, whether through practicing a skill or narrating content. And that can be contrasted with the approach of a teacher-based lecturing lesson where the teacher is the disseminator of the content or the key demonstrator of the skill, right? So you could imagine in a math lesson, where they may not be lecturing for 45 minutes on content or lots of information, but the teacher is still basically the one doing all of the work of the learning on the whiteboard or the chalkboard or the smart board or what have you, where the teacher is just constantly showing, here's how you do this equation. Here's how you solve this math problem. And the teacher is doing all of the work and this sitting passively in their desks notes or writing down the steps that the teacher is performing in front of them. And I think that one key insight that you're sharing with us here, Jason, is that 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 student passive approach is not ultimately what's going to help the students reach mastery. We need to put the ball in the hands of the student. And in content lessons, that's going to be through a narration-based method and in more skill-based lessons spelling, mathematics, um, science lessons where you're trying to hone particular skills or help them demonstrate particular explanations of a concept. You know, the students are the ones. Let's get out the whiteboards and we're going to we're going to have them practice it 
rather than just watching the teacher demonstrate it from up front. And this connects, um, to use other language, with um, mind, brain, and education science that has been talking for many years now and showing the research that, that proves that frequent formative assessment is so important for student learning outcomes. So we know at this point um, that students learn more when you don't delay an assessment or test. And see, the problem with what you were describing, Colby, is, is this cram, test, forget method where you have students supposedly take notes and study up from a text where they're rereading it um, in advance of, you know, every few weeks or maybe at the end of a month or a unit, they have a big test on it. Um, but in between, before then, they aren't necessarily held accountable for much work in retrieving, showing what they know, engaging proactively with the material. They're just presented it by a teacher with a great PowerPoint lecture or, you know, illustrating things on the board for them. And they're expected to know it, but they don't get uh, many reps. And so, you know, in a way, narration, as well as the discussion and responses are giving students those reps where they're engaging with the material, where they're forced to recall from their own mind what they were just shared or exposed to in terms of content knowledge. And so formative assessment is a great way of kind of, or lens of viewing from a modern educational term, the value of something like narration and of having these two sorts of lessons where you're getting students doing the work of learning. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, the thought that came to my mind as you were talking was when is it the student's turn to practice the learning or do the, the telling back or even the quote unquote lecturing, right? And under this cram test forget model where it's primarily the teacher doing the work of learning in the classroom through lecture or PowerPoint presentation, the question of when's it your turn student is well every two weeks when it's time for the test so you know two weeks have passed by of the teacher giving the content or demonstrating the skills on the board and now it's your turn student so you better study up get out your notes study a lot tonight because tomorrow's the test what you're describing jason where every day is the test so to speak but it's a low stakes test. It's practice. It's low stakes quizzing. It's the sort of retrieval practice that you're talking about that cognitive scientists describe and say books like Make It Stick. So, so really valuable stuff here. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices 
Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. You know, going back to this Trivium lesson plan that you've created for us, and I think about, you know, the, the pre-rhetoric and pre-dialectic and, and pre-grammar and how we're, we're cultivating these skills from a young age. I have to say, I'm just such a proponent of narration more than ever, minimally. When I observe some of these younger classrooms and I see students narrating, I can just see the wheels turning. I can see the oral fluency growing, uh, the, the oral fluency growing and developing. You know, you think of a five-year-old or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old and just help a, a child learn to speak and to think and to process. Well, I think Charlotte Mason's insight of how about have them tell back great stories? Like that is a, just a, such an insightful way to really get their intellectual life off the ground, to get these liberal arts being trained at a very young age. Um, really, really great stuff here. When I think it actually accords with someone like Dorothy Sayers in her Lost Tools of Learning, um, because I think there's a temptation for us to, um, you know, pit two different thinkers against one another. And, you know, they're not the same. No, no two sets of thinkers are the same. But um, in her essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, this kind of goes back to foundations of the classical Christian education movement in America, at least. She had this main insight. I mean, she did rely on the stages and the trivium as stages, as opposed to what I'm saying, where the trivium arts are skills that we would develop in students all along from the youngest grades on up. But even as she did that, her main point was to say that these are tools of learning, right? They are, the, the students need to get the tools and handle them and get practice using them. And so all the different kind of techniques she proposed for these different stages, I've seen it put in a chart by um, schools that are influenced by this. A lot of those are, are active engagement strategies like narration where students are being required to engage with the knowledge itself and produce something, whether it's memorization or speeches or debates, um, all of these things are, are a way where, where Dorothy Sayers is saying, we can't just teach students subjects. We need to teach them how to learn. We need to get them using the tools and forging the stuff of knowledge themselves through engaging with the material that we're putting in front of them. And so I think there's, a, again, a, a great insight here that we can kind of all embrace from wherever we're coming from. Yeah, like I said earlier, John Milton Gregory there um, saying many of the same things in his seven laws of teaching about the importance of students really thinking truths into their own minds and guarding against the same errors. So it's fun to see that trajectory and maybe to trace that back in a way, you know, and like Dorothy Sayers to John Milton Gregory, to Charlotte Mason, just around his time slightly before him, even back to John Amos Comenius and many of the things he was saying about education. There's this great tradition about the importance of student 
learning and how that happens methodologically in your lesson plan. Are you making sure that this is what's happening, that students are getting the skills and they are digesting the knowledge for themselves and you're giving them space and time to do that. You're focusing on that and what they're actually learning. And we can get, you taught it, did the student learn it? Because you're not teaching if students aren't learning. And it's always important to remember that as a teacher. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so there are two two things I want to talk about next, and I'm, I'm deciding which one to. One is, Jason, um, let, let's go with this, this metaphor of tools of learning for a moment. I've been thinking about this metaphor. Obviously, it's been popularized in the Dorothy Sayers essay that the liberal arts are tools of learning. Um, and in her context, you know, she, she said that they were the lost tools of learning that we need to recover. Um, Patrick, Jason, um, whoever would like to, to respond to this, how, how, how should we think about this metaphor of tool learning and Charlotte Mason's idea that narration is, is something natural to children, that it sort of resides within them before formal education. In other words, does using the metaphor of tools of learning suggest that uh, children do not have this tool prior to formal education? Does it in some ways rub against this idea that children are persons uh, who are created by God with what they need uh, for a vibrant intellectual life? I think that's a very interesting question. I think it may be something that um, some others are getting into. I see that Classical Academic Press has just recently published a book called The Lost Seeds of Learning, um, using an organic metaphor there. And um, that is something that even Clark and Jane, I think in their most recent revision of the liberal arts tradition have used the term seeds of learning I think metaphors can always be pushed too far. Um, I think that there might be a way in which, you know, if you, what you're expressing is we see the seeds of um, the liberal arts themselves already nascent within the child's mind um, before he or she is even brought into the world. Like we were made as human beings with the ability to use words and numbers. We actually have these frames kind of built within our mental architecture to approach the world through learning language and number. I think you could over push that uh, as well. I think we learn a lot and acquire a lot in terms of language and how our mind is structured in terms of number that if we were dropped down in the middle of I don't know. Um, well, I, language is a cultural phenomenon and gift that we give as an inheritance to one another. And so if, say, a, you know, a baby were raised by non-speaking machines or animals or something like that, I suppose we could wonder what exactly they would have. I mean, but then I, su I suppose you could come back at that argument and say, well, but then put them in with human beings again, and, and immediately the human being would start learning to speak and to, you know, we would start counting things naturally. So, so I think there is a, a way in we, which we could pretty definitively say the seeds of these things are planted within us as human beings.
um, and they need to be tended to, um, not handed to the Hmm. children as if they were tools. And I guess I would just say as well that we might be then pushing the tools metaphor too far. What the tools metaphor does that I really like and I think is valuable is it draws attention to the idea of the liberal arts as arts, as crafts, areas of craftsmanship um, in which we might forge something, we might create something. And so I do think that the tradition recognized the, the liberal arts as, in that sense, tools, productive areas where we would produce something. So that if you have grammar, it's not simply the science of knowing correct speech, but it's the fact that you can actually produce correct speech, that you can write, that you can read in a particular language correctly. And you know how to do that. You, you know how, not just that. You, you get what I'm saying? That it's, um, it's a, a productive area. And same thing with rhetoric or with arithmetic or any of the others. And so I, I do think that, that that aspect of tools is helpful because it kind of reinvigorates the word art. Like I've tried to do with the word craftsmanship as I've been exploring Aristotle's intellectual virtue of techne um, more recently is that it's, yeah, well, it's actually for, it's creating something, you know, you're bringing something into the world in a sense that was never, was not there before. You're using existing materials of words um, and you are creating something following a true course of reasoning. I don't know, Patrick, what's, what thoughts do you have on that dilemma that Colby made for us? Yeah, I think it, it what came to my mind was the concept of virtue and when, when Aristotle is developing a, a theory of virtue, he gives expression to the idea that virtue is natural to us in that it's very natural for a human being to cultivate virtue, but it's also foreign to us. So we're not born with a full set of virtues. They need to be cultivated and habituated in us. And I think this is true of knowledge as well, that it's very natural for us. It's native to the way we operate to work with knowledge, to acquire knowledge. And and I think this gets to why narration is so important to a lesson plan, is that a child wants to tell back. They, They love to come inside and tell mom about what the experiences they just had. And so they're working with knowledge. They're, they're trying to process things. And so it's very natural to the human being to work with knowledge, but that knowledge occurs to us from outside. Um, and so we, we need to have great texts and great ideas presented to us because they won't just occur to us naturally. I mean, obviously there are things that are innate in us, but um, as we as we're presented with these things, we need to work with them because there's that sense in which the, that which is foreign to us is built on um, like this operating system that we have that's very um, embedded within us. So I, that's where I think the tools themselves, they, they, are, they are fit to purpose. They're, it's not as though um, 
the, the hammer, for instance, is fit to our hands. It's very natural for us to use it, but we also need to learn how to use it. It's proper use. You know, we're not using it in the kitchen to prepare our food. We're using it to build things. And so there are other tools that are fit to our hands that are better suited to that purpose. So I'm taking the analogy too far, I think. <laughs> no, and tool, I, well, we, I suppose you could say that, but I, to push that just one step further, it is, is the fact that tools are made by human beings, right? We came up with a hammer. A hammer is, again, suited to our hands, but those who came before us, somebody came up with the idea of a hammer and made it. And I think that is true as well of the liberal arts, that the art of speaking correctly is something that is a has been forged by human cultural tradition that we've passed on. Um, it's not something, again, that that was born, that we were born with. Is it in accord with reason and therefore like true? Um, yes, but that doesn't mean that it's not also a human cultural product in the sense that all words are human cultural products and are symbols of how we even calculate and equate things in the mathematical realm are you know, human symbols that are of course referring to uh, transcendent realities. Did that go where you thought it would go, Colby? I don't know. Yeah, no, that was fun. I really appreciated hearing your thoughts. So thanks, guys. Um, well, you know, just to, to wrap up here, maybe one final question um, for us to, to think about together. Um, Jason, I've been thinking about this lesson plan template, which, by the way, listeners, you guys can find on our website. Uh, you can download it for free um, at educationalrenaissance.com. It's, it's uh, called Charlotte Mason's Practice of Narration. If you go to that tab um, and then click download Charlotte Mason and the trivium, you can, you can get this template and it's on page 22, um, just for those of you who are interested. And uh, Jason, I'd like to just take the last couple of minutes here to think about the little talk, um, the, this pre-grammar step in the lesson plan, um, also known as the setup, right? And the goal here to, to really help your students have a high quality reading and narration of the text. And I don't know, Jason, but when I have teachers come to me and say, hey, narration's not going well, or my class is having trouble narrating this text, one of the first places I go is to the setup. Well, tell me about your setup. Tell me about your little talk. How have you been preparing your students for the reading and narration? And in the lesson plan, template, you know, you, you provide a couple different ways to do the setup, right? Whether it's through introducing vocabulary, providing background information, uh, rehearsing previous content from a previous lesson, or even getting out a, uh, a map together and looking at specific locations on, on a map that you're about to read about in, say, a Bible lesson or a history lesson. I'm wondering, Jason, if you could just comment briefly for us a couple little talk tactics that you find particularly helpful, and maybe along the way you could share what do you think? What do you think are some common mistakes teachers make when they when they set up the text using this? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question because I do think that if you're if you're using narration regularly, you probably will reach a point at which it's feeling like pulling teeth or you're getting ex- an experience where it's not going perfectly, you know, like you would hope. And so I do think, like you said, Colby, that often the challenge is the little talk isn't doing what it should. Um, I think it's easy for teachers to get into a rut where you just do the same sort of little talk or you virtually skip over it and you're kind of being diligent about the narration thing, but it's not going well because the students aren't really primed. They're not expectant. They're right their minds aren't spinning in the right place for the text that's in front of them. And so um, that could be a couple different things going wrong. One, one challenge is that you might have a challenging text. The, the text is pretty high level for where the students are at. So narration is going to be hard for them because they're not comprehending it that well. And there is, is where perhaps the, you know, making it real and concrete for them is important. There might be so many vocab words that your students don't know in the text that you really should be setting up those vocab words well, especially ones that really bring the plot along or help make sense of what the text is. Because if students don't get the text, they, they don't feel its significance, then it's not going to be fun for them. Like you said, it's not going to be enjoyable for them to narrate because they're still like their head's foggy. And when your head's foggy, it's not enjoyable. That's just how it is. The challenge level is too high. So I think that's one thing that you might be experiencing. Um, It could also be that some older students who have done narration for a while are kind of getting into the rut of just just chugging content. So they get it all. But in that case, the significance and the interest of the text is not getting across as fully to them. And there might be a couple of things you could do um, to kind of mix up your setup that I think would help that. I would actually consider, I'm not sure I'd put this on there as much, but um, Things like if if it, if you do have a map or something like that, and or there's something in the text that is going to be described, but the kids can't see, you might want to make it visible to them. So it might be a picture, it might be a map, it might be some way of like before they even get into the scene, make the scene visible to them and to their minds, such that it's like, oh, interesting. Where's that going to go? Like, what's going to happen? In the battle, if you kind of give them the scene before they have even context for it and make them look at something um, tangible like that. I find this works really well often in science. If there are figures that are going to be used in the text, go look at those before you read the text and have the students try and puzzle out and piece together what the figures are saying, like what's in them, what is it explaining. That really helps. The other thing I would say is try a discussion. It might be that um, your students aren't enjoying the narration um, or the text as fully because they they don't really get why the idea in the text or the ideas are are valuable or interesting. 
So if you could have a stirring discussion, especially with older students, where you pose some big picture idea that like the text is going to get at in some way and maybe solve or give an answer to, and you even don't let that discussion go that long, but you let it kind of linger unsolved and then jump right into the text. That can be a way as well to really breathe life into what's going on. That requires you as a teacher to read that text ahead of time and plan and say, what's, what's going on at the heart of this? Is, is this saying something about human beings that's really profound and curious and, and going to grab my students' attention, going to hit them where they're at, and then kind of try and like break that open with a few leading questions for the students um, beforehand. That can be another great way. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thanks so much for, for sharing those. Uh, yeah, really, really setting up the text well with that, that little talk, which in turn is this idea of pre-grammar that you're getting at, that we're actually through this little talk actually helping sow seeds of the liberal art of grammar. I love how you can connect those ideas for us. So, so thank you for that. Well, listeners, this has been a wonderful time. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Um, again, you can, you can learn more about this particular topic by going to our website, educationalrenaissance.com, and you can download this, this lesson plan template. It's called Charlotte Mason and the Trivium. If you have a minute, it'd be really helpful for us if you could give this episode a rating. And also, if you'd be willing, write a review for us. Um, this helps other listeners, other like-minded educators find our podcast. You know, we want to do all we can to equip educators uh, in their important work of Christian classical education and using Charlotte Mason's uh, pedagogy. And so please uh, take, a, take a minute to write a review for us. That'd be really helpful. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. We have more podcasts available. Feel free to check those out. You can go online to our website to check out different blogs. And of course, we also have webinars available that we would encourage you to listen in on. So thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.